Before I, I get into what I want to speak about this morning, I, hmm, I want to take a moment for us to reflect on what's happened in our country this week. A week ago, none of you would have known the name Ashleen Murphy, and today all of you will. A woman who lost her life, an ordinary woman, doing her thing, and she lost her life to gender-based violence. And as this nation grieves, I want us to pause and think and pray. And I know that for me, in moments like this, the only prayer that makes sense is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. So can we bow our heads and can we lift them, her family, to the, the throne of grace? Because that's all I know how to do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we come, our hearts are heavy and our hearts are breaking as another beautiful woman has lost her life on these shores, this city, this, this country that we love so well. And so we pray this morning and we bring before your throne of grace her parents, Raymond and Kathleen, her brother Cahill, her sister Amy. Lord, Lord have mercy. As they go to sleep at night and images and thoughts trouble them of what might have been, Lord have mercy. As they wake up in the morning and suddenly the reality of their lives hits them, oh Lord have mercy. And as they meet friends and family who are stuck and they don't know what to say, be there and Lord have mercy. And as they prepare to say farewell to her this week, we hold them before you and we say, Lord, have mercy. And as we think of ourselves and perhaps how we, in insignificant ways and in big ways, contribute to a culture where gender violence continues to be a daily experience, we repent. Show us by your spirit how we contribute and what we can do. Lord, have mercy. And as we serve the Prince of Peace, who was nonviolent, who loved and served and humbled himself, may we find ways to do that and to change the story for women across this island. Lord, have mercy. And so, Father, keep this family in our thoughts and in our prayers. Let us hold them up every day and not forget them. And we pray that the Prince of Peace walks alongside them this week and in the days ahead. And we pray all this and trust all this in the beautiful, life-giving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And of course, we know her name. And we know Sarah Everard. We don't know the names of the two women every week who die in the UK at the hands of an intimate partner. We don't know them. And we need to think about that and reflect on that and not just talk about it and be troubled, but actually wonder. And perhaps if all you did in your groups today was think a little more about this issue, that would be a really good outcome. Because something has to change. If we've to bring, if we're called to bring the shalom of heaven, then surely we bring it to this culture where women no longer need to live in fear. Okay. 
about a little gear shift now into the passage. About 20 years ago, uh, as a family, we went to Italy on holiday. Three sets of families, six adults, eight kids. It was carnage and brilliant all at once. Um, we had, between us, we'd two in buggies and we'd five others running about going crazy. And we decided in our wisdom, or lack of it, that the last day of the holiday we'd spend in Rome and we would do Rome. So we did Rome. Um, and it was 32 degrees at least. We had, it was craziness. Um, have you done that as well? Yeah. Parents do these things. Um, anyway, we saw everything. We went to the Vatican City. We went to the Colosseum. We walked and walked and walked. It was ours, and it was hot, 32 degrees. And the last bit on the tour guide was Trevi Fountain. And so it's about 6 o'clock in the evening. It was the 12th of July. Um, and uh, we're, Tom, our youngest, was in the buggy, so he was about two and a half. I was in flip-flops, because that's all you could wear in 32 degrees of heat. And we were pushing, I was pushing the buggy up this hill, because this was apparently the last thing we had to see. And I was hot and uncomfortable and tired and crotchety, much more so than my children were, to be fair. And uh, I turned to Stephen and I said, this had better be good. And I just was thinking about that this week, and I thought, this has nothing to do with my preach, but I thought, very often what happens to us in the moment, instead of owning it and thinking about it and reflecting on it, we blame someone else. I was suddenly making my tiredness and my weariness Stephen's fault, like this had better be good or you're for it. How ridiculous. So that, that's nothing to do with the preach, that's a psychological insight that you're getting for free <laughs> this morning. So anyway, we get to the top, and I don't know if many of you have seen Trevi Fountain, but you just go through these tiny wee streets, and you suddenly turn the corner, and it's like, whoa, amazing, breathtaking. So we get down, and I take Tom out of the buggy, and him and I sit on the side, and the kids are all around, we get the photos done, and, and I look down at my feet, eight hours in flip-flops, it's hot, and it's dusty, and they're stinking. And I have what I consider as a genius idea. And so I literally swivel myself round with Tom on board and I dip my feet in the fountain. And I watch as the water goes brown and muddy and I think, and they feel so good. And it's cold. And suddenly out of the corner of my eye, I can see this squealing, gesticulating police officer. And... <laughs> She comes over. She didn't have a word of English. I didn't have a word of Italian, but we knew what we meant. No feet in the fountain. No feet in the fountain. So I thoroughly apologized, lifted my beautifully clean feet and, and flip-flops out and kind of walked away slightly ashamed. And that became a little bit of a, a family giggle, the time mum dipped her feet in Trevi Fountain. You can imagine. But I was thinking about those feet this week as I thought about this story, and we're in John 13, Maundy Thursday, the night before Jesus is betrayed, and he washes their feet. And I thought about it this week, and I thought, if I'd walked up there and someone had said to me, for 20 euros or whatever, I'll wash your feet, I probably would have taken it. But if Stephen or if one of my other mates had said to me, Steph, let me wash those feet. 
I don't know that I would have taken it because I was embarrassed by the dirt and the stinkingness of them and the sweatiness of them and all the rest of it. And that wasn't Middle Eastern times. So hold that thought. So I'm going to read the passage to us. I'm reading it from the message. Um, I love what N.T. Wright says about this passage. When Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples about his forthcoming death and what it means, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. And John Mark Comer talks about the meal culture of Jesus' economy. Jesus' mission was to seek and to serve the lost, and his method was to eat and to drink with them. Jesus saved people one meal at a time. So it's Monday, Thursday. This is the context. Monday, Thursday is named Monday from the Latin word mandatum, which means a command. And the love from and the command from this passage is love as I have loved. So five nights before the story, Jesus had been eating with his friends, big theme of the New Testament, meals and eating. He'd been eating with Mary and Martha, and Mary had done that beautiful act and had anointed his feet. So Jesus enjoyed it, welcomed it, and embraced it. He knew what was ahead, and he enjoyed the lovely act that his friend did. So this is the backstory. We know that people in those days ate at very low tables. We know that the, 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 the roads wouldn't just have been like the roads in Rome that I worked, walked on. There would have been, you know, animal waste. <laughs> I have to think how to say that politely. Animal waste everywhere that they may have walked on. And so what happened when you went to someone's house for a meal was the host provided a slave and it was the lowest of the slaves. So it wasn't just the normal slaves, it was the least of the slaves, usually a girl. And she would have washed your feet, but for some reason this didn't happen. And so the story begins. So I'm going to read it here. Uh, it's a long story, but I think it's worth it. John chapter 13. Just before the, before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world to go to the Father. Having loved his dear companions, he continued to love them right to the end. It was supper time. The devil by now had Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, firmly in his grip, all set for the betrayal. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God and was on his way back to God. So he got up from the supper table, set aside his robe and put on an apron. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with his apron. He got to Simon Peter and he said, Master, you wash my feet? Jesus answered, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but it will be clear enough to you later. Peter persisted, you're not going to wash my feet ever. Jesus said to him, if I don't wash you, you can't be part of what I'm doing. Master, said Peter, not only my feet then, wash my hands and wash my head. Jesus said, if you've had a bath in the morning, you only need to wash your feet now and you're clean from head to toe. My concern, you understand, is holiness, not hygiene. So now you're clean but not every one of you. He knew who was betraying him. That's why he said, not every one of you. After he had finished washing their feet, he took his robe, put it back on, and went back to his place at the table. Then he said, do you understand what I have done to you? 
You address me as teacher and master, and rightly so. This is what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. I'm not including all of you in this. I know precisely who I've selected so as not to interfere with the fulfillment of the scripture. The one who ate bread at my table turned on his heel against me. I'm telling you all this ahead of time so that when it happens, you will believe that I am who I say I am. Make sure you get this right. Receiving someone I send is the same as receiving me. Just as receiving me is the same as receiving the one who sent me. After he said these things, Jesus became visibly upset. And I love him all the more for that. He showed his humanity and he showed his emotion. And then he told them why. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked around at one another, wondering who on earth he was talking about. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved dearly, was reclining against him, his head on his shoulder. Wow. Peter motioned to him, asked Jesus, who might he be talking about? So being the closest, he said, Master, who? Jesus said, the one to whom I give this crust of bread after I've dipped it. Then he dipped the crust and gave it to Judas. As soon as the bread was in his hand, Satan entered him. What you must do, said Jesus, do. Do it and get it over with. No one around the supper table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that Jesus was their treasurer. Jesus was telling him to buy what they needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Judas, with the piece of bread, left. It was night. When he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is seen for who he is and God's seen for who he is in him. The moment God is seen in him, God's glory will be on display. In glorifying him, he himself is glorified. Children, I am with you for only a short time longer. You're going to look high and low for me. But just as I told the Jews, I'm telling you, where I go, you're not able to come. Let me give you the new command. Love one another in the same way I loved you. You love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. Simon Peter asked him, Master, where are you going? You can't follow me now where I'm going. You'll follow later. Master, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. Really, Jesus said, you'll lay down your life for me? The truth is that before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So that's the whole chapter. John layers it up a lot more than the other uh, Gospels do. And I think he layers it up because he wants us to really understand the story. He wants us to appreciate just how much, how important this evening was was for the disciples and for the followers of Jesus now and also the things that they didn't know who the host was. There'd been a gap and Jesus stepped in. So the things I just want us to think about, if we're thinking about this model of friendship, friendship with Jesus and friendship, Jesus' friendship with his disciples, what does that actually look like? Because that's what we are called to live. 
And I suppose the things I simply want to highlight are that Jesus and his disciples were fully known to each other. They were open, they were vulnerable, they were real. He knew the disciples, God had given him the knowledge of what was ahead, and he wanted them to know, I'm all over it, I know what's happening, and it's okay, I'm in charge. You can be safe following me, because I know what is ahead. So he was explaining to them what was going to happen that made no sense, but it made sense to him. He always told the truth. And the other thing is, only someone who's very close to you can really betray you. Because Judas was not just saying where Jesus was going. He was talking about a state of mind to those in charge. So it was his closeness to the Lord that allowed him to betray him. And betrayal doesn't happen that often, but it does happen in life. And often when we're betrayed or a leader betrays us, and that happens. I don't know whether they sometimes or a lot. Maybe I'm just going to say sometimes. <laughs> when leaders betray us, we can start to wonder, will we trust people again? Will we take a risk? But life is always about relational risk and is always about starting again. And I think it's very important to sort of muse on that and maybe what it means for you. Jesus knows Judas, he names it, and he releases him. He tells him, go and do what you need to do. You're not with me. I will still serve you. I've just washed your feet. I'm going to give you food, but now you need to go and do what you need to do. And he releases him. And sometimes that happens in life. We have to set people free. We have to let them go because it's healthier for them and it's healthier for us. I love the phrase that hurt people hurt people, but what I love more is loved people love people. Jesus knew that he was loved. He knew that he was the father, fathers. He knew that his friends loved him. He had experienced a beautiful act five nights before, and he was able to go and love others. And I think if I, going back to my experiences at Trevi Fountain, I would have been embarrassed for one of my friends to do my feet. I really would, because actually it's quite hard to be the vulnerable one. Actually, it's quite hard to share our mess and let someone else care for us. And actually, it's maybe easier for me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room, to care for others than to receive care. And yet, unless I feel and live truly loved by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit, I can't love anyone else, or I'm doing it with all the wrong reasons. And the other thing I love about Jesus' model of friendship and what he invites us into is that he showed his emotions. As a weeper, I find that beautiful. He loved them to the end and he showed them his distress. He felt stuff. We should never feel shame about what we feel or what we think, but we should seek help and we should seek support. And of course, Jesus was talking to Peter. When he talked to Peter, he wasn't talking about a hygiene thing. You know, you've washed this morning, you silly man. It's not about this. I'm actually doing something that's speaking to what's ahead. On the cross, I will wash away your sins. It's referring back to Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And so 
I want us to pause now and go into our groups, but I, I want us when we come to the table later, I want us to think about this idea of being invited to show our mess and our dirt. This is a metaphor, I believe, for how the Lord loves us, that the mess and the dirt on our feet, he wants to come and care for it. He wants to clean it. He wants to sit with you and massage your feet, metaphorically. He wants you fully accepted and fully loved. There's nothing that will hold you back. And so we'll, we'll reflect upon that again in the table.